Recovery Elevator, episode 133. Like what I've learned is, is how to change my perception on things. I feel like everybody could use a 12-step program, whatever it is, because the tips that it gives you in managing day-to-day life is just amazing. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator Podcast. My name is Paul Churchill. Thank you so much for joining us. According to my Recovery Elevator sobriety tracker on my phone, I've been sober for 35 months, three weeks, and four days. Man, I am close to three years, but it's not in the bag yet. On today's podcast, we've got Christy. She's 44 years old. She's from the Menlo Park area. She's got two kids, and she's been sober for over nine months. Christy, in her words, had just had enough. And before we get to our topic today, let's hear from Cafe RE. Before I got sober, I felt alone. It felt like I was the only one in the whole world who found it extremely difficult to stop drinking once I had started. With Cafe RE, I now know I'm not alone. In fact, there are so many people all around this world just like me. In Cafe RE, for $12 a month, I get access to a private, unsearchable Facebook group where I can connect with other like-minded individuals, meet with them face-to-face in several weekly live webinars and meetings, I can get paired with an accountability partner who has a similar sobriety date as mine, I can attend in-person meetups and attend exclusive sober trips to places like Costa Rica. If there's one thing I've learned in sobriety, it's that I can't do this alone. Go to recoveryelevator.com and use the promo code ELEVATOR for your first month free. Again, use the promo code ELEVATOR when signing up for your first month free. Okay, let's get started. The topic for today's podcast came from an article that I stumbled across on bloomberg.com, and there will be a link to this article in the recoveryelevator.com show notes episode 133. The title of this article is called America's Drinking Problem is Much Worse This Century. So according to the article, alcohol abuse has shot up since 2001, and the number of adults who binge weekly may top the population of Texas. I hear that's a pretty big state with a lot of people. Americans are drinking more than they used to, a troubling trend with potentially dire implications for the country's future health care costs. The number of adults who binge drink at least once a week could be as high as 30 million. Wow. Greater than the population of every state except California. And this is according to a study published on Wednesday in the JAMA Psychiatry Journal. Strikingly, also a similar number reported alcohol abuse or dependency. Between the genders, women showed the larger increase in alcohol abuse, according to the report. This should be a huge wake-up call, said David Jernigan, director of the Center of Alcohol Marketing and Youth at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. According to David, alcohol is our number one drug problem, and it's not just a problem among kids. Again, you've heard me say it on this podcast that alcohol kills more people than every other drug combined. I just read that President Trump declared a state of emergency against the opioid epidemic. Sure, it is an epidemic, and I don't want to undercut that, but alcohol is a much larger epidemic. It's just surprising that we don't talk about it more. The article goes on to say, While underage drinking has declined in recent years, adult consumption increased across all demographics. The jump was also especially large for older Americans, minorities, and people with lower levels of education and income. This rise is startling, said Bridget Grant, a researcher at the National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism and lead author of the paper. We haven't seen these increases for three or four decades. The share of adults who reported any alcohol use, high-risk drinking or alcohol dependence or abuse increased significantly between when surveys were conducted in 2001 and 2002 and in the follow-up surveys during 2012 and 2013. 
Researchers personally interview tens of thousands of people with similar questions, offering a robust, nationally representative look at how American drinking habits have evolved in the 21st century. About 12.6% of adults reported risky drinking during the previous year in 2012 and 13, compared with 9.7% in 2001 and 2002. Behavior was considered high risk if people surpassed the government's guidelines for excessive alcohol intake set at four drinks in one day for women and five drinks for men, at least once a week. Now, that three percentage point increase may not seem like a huge jump, but given an adult U.S. population of about 250 million, it represents roughly 7 million more people binge drinking at least once a week. So why has there been such a sharp uptick in drinking? Well, there's no single explanation for this increase. Researchers point to economic stress in the aftermath of the Great Recession, more easily available alcohol at restaurants and retailers, and the diminished impact on alcohol taxes. As a percentage of average income, alcohol is cheaper today than at any point since at least 1950. And here's one that I think has the most impact. Pervasive marketing by the alcohol industry and new products such as flavored vodkas or hard lemonade and iced teas may also be driving some of the increases among women and other demographics. The consequences for healthcare, well-being, and mortality are severe. Excess drinking caused on average more than 88,000 deaths in the U.S. each year from 2006 to 2010. The Centers for Disease Control estimates more than twice the number of deaths from prescription opioids and heroin last year. The total includes drunk driving deaths and alcohol-linked violence, as well as liver disease, strokes, and other medical conditions. The CDC, or the Center for Disease Control, says drinking too much is responsible for 1 in 10 deaths among working-age Americans. That's crazy. And the estimated cost of excess alcohol consumption is almost $250 billion a year. And this is just in the U.S. alone. So what can be done? Making alcohol more costly through higher taxes or setting a minimum price could reduce consumption, says William Kerr, senior scientist at the Alcohol Research Group, a nonprofit research center primarily funded by the National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism. Has this been done elsewhere? Probably. In Canada, putting a floor under prices was linked to reductions in alcohol-related hospital visits. Wow. Limiting availability by restricting hours of sale or the number of liquor licenses, for example, would also reduce consumption. Americans tend to consider excess drinking a character flaw rather than a medical problem. Again, it's that damn stigma, and that's the reason why I'm behind the microphone right now. Only about one-fifth of people who have reported alcohol abuse or dependency have ever been treated. That compared to depression, which is about 60% of people who report that they have experienced depression, receive treatment. Again, a link to this article is on the Recovery Elevator show notes, episode 133, if you'd like to read the full thing in its entirety. After reading this article, will it help you get sober? Uh, probably not. But it's a cool piece of relevant information to know about. As a society, we are drinking more and more. That is true, according to the research. Okay, enough out of me. Let's hear from Christy. Christy, how are you? I'm doing all right. How are you, Paul? I'm good. Thanks for asking. And Christy, let's get right into this. How long have you been sober? I have been sober for almost nine months. It will be nine months on August 14th. Congratulations on that. And it's this time around, I understand from a message you sent me previously that about three years ago you had 18 months of sobriety. And we'll talk more about that later in the interview, but let's get to know you a little better. Give listeners a little background about yourself, maybe where you're from, what you do for a living. How old are you? Do you have a family? And what do you like to do for fun, Christy? Sure. Well, I live in Menlo Park, California, which is Northern California near Stanford. And I grew up in this area, um, just a little bit north of where I am 
now I am 44. I am married and I have two kids uh, who are boys and they're very active, a nine-year-old and an 11-year-old. And for fun, I do a lot of stuff with them. I'm not currently working. I, I worked for 25 years in software sales cool. <laughs> and went on a little hold uh, starting last year. And I've been just spending my time volunteering. I, I volunteer in my kids' schools uh, during the school year, but I do uh, actually have a big dog who's very, very sweet. And she's a Bernese Mountain Dog. Nice. And we do therapy work together. So we visit nursing homes and libraries and daycares and schools. And I really like the, the program with the kids because they lay down with her and they read to her. And I guess it's supposed to help kids who uh, are challenged in reading, kind of having that bond with the animal. So the kids so read yeah, to your Bernie's Mountain Dog? They do. They do. It's pretty funny. They're usually between the ages of six and 12 and they sign up and they lay down and they pick a book and uh, they read to her. So and a Bernie's Mountain chill. Dog in the ages of six and 12, they can understand what's being read to them? I'm, I'm kidding. <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> no, she just, she just kind of gives them comfort and they pet her. And Yeah. No, I, I can understand nice. it because there's, there's, there's a lot of trepidation if you, you know, you're you not comfortable with reading, reading to an adult and a dog is just sits there and She's like, yeah, he gets it. That's pretty cool. That's awesome you do that. Yeah, she's like a big teddy bear, so it's, it's fun. Yeah, and addiction <laughs> and alcohol and this whole wagon is not anything new to you. I understand from the message you sent to me that you lost your mom when you were 18 due to addiction. Mm -hmm. And um, mm -hmm. your, well, your brother passed away last year, and I'm sorry to hear about that. He's been, he was sober for 15 years and then had a relapse on pain meds, but that, mm -hmm. that wasn't like the final reason why he passed away. But just talk to me about no. how addiction is has been with you for a long time. Yeah, so I, I grew up in a in a in a nice neighborhood and family intact, and you know I had a, a mom who was great, and she was at all my school events. She came to my sporting events, and it was me and I'm the youngest of five, so she really was a big part of of our lives. As the kids started to leave the nest, she kind of started deteriorating. And by the time that I was uh, a freshman in high school, her drinking was really, really bad. And at this time, you know, I'd come home and I'd see her and she would have a glass of what I thought was water, you know, next to her. And she always had this bad smell about her and she was just acting really erratic. She was, had been ostracized by all her friends because she had, you know, flirted with their husbands. And, I mean, this is all the alcohol just totally changed her personality. Mm -hmm. And I remember one time I I was going through her sock drawer and, and then I was like, you know, Mom, why, why do you have this bottle of vodka in there? And she's, I'm the only one that was living in the house at the time. She just says, well, somebody's drinking it. And mind you, it was not me. <laughs> yeah. So that was very strange. There were times where she was uh, physically and emotionally abusive to me. And there was one time that I actually came home and found her in, in the car where she had turned the motor on and, and had tried to commit suicide. Mm. So I found her. I think I must have been around 16 or so trying to think of some more example or episodes. Um, I, she and I had gotten in a fight. I was 16 and I 
ran off to a friend's house and she somehow got the police to come out and get me. And I told them I didn't want to come home because my mom's nuts. And they said, they said, would you like us to come in and help you talk to her? And I said, okay. And Mm -hmm. they came in with me and we found her on, on her bed with passed out with, you know, she'd been drinking alcohol and taking prescription drugs. So she had to get rushed to the hospital. So her final demise was my senior year. It was the month of January, and I only know that because I had gotten all my college applications out. Yeah. And I get a call, and or not a call, yeah, a call. My my older brother says, you know, I want to come pick you up. I want to talk to you. And I'm like, okay. Like, I thought I was in trouble because I had had, like, a party, you know, a couple days prior at my house. Mm-hmm. And so I get in the car, and he says, you know, Christy – mom died and I'm just wow. I was complete utter shock did not know what the heck happened but it turned out that it was liver cirrhosis and uh, it was all the the meds and the alcohol she'd been putting in her body how old was your mother when she passed away uh, she was 47 and tell me about the progression you said it kind of started when you were a freshman in high school uh, you know, four years is that sounds like a pretty quick progression yeah it, it was did really it happen quick like, because yeah fast yeah, it, 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 it did, but I just started noticing it more and more because I was, you know, like one brother would leave and the other brother would leave and it was just me and her and she and my dad were, you know, not getting along at the time and mm-hmm. he had moved out and it was just awful. She was just, it was just like she was a completely different person. She had lost her friends. She was either really like, like angry at me or she would be drowning me with love which I found really annoying because, you know, as a teenager, you just like get away, mom, you know, it's just, yeah. and she was, she was drunk, you know, she'd come in and she'd hang on me and ugh, it was just awful. So your mom passes away. And I imagine after that, you probably saw alcohol and you're like, no way that's the devil. Right. Or you probably had a respect for it knowing what could happen because you lived with it and saw it happen in four years you saw somebody yeah. die from it that was very close to you what was your view on alcohol after that you know it's funny at that point I, I you know I thought this would never be me there's no way I, I could never do that to my kids you know I, I was I felt like she chose drugs and alcohol over being a mom and I still needed a mom mm-hmm. and she was a great mom when I was younger but I don't know what she became but that person oh, was awful. So after she passed away, you know, I lived with my, my dad and I developed uh, an eating disorder. And, you know, it was kind of my, I guess, way of grieving. And it just like I would run incessantly, like just like 12 miles a day and mm-hmm. I wouldn't eat. Or if I eat, I'd binge. And it was just it was me controlling something. I needed to control something. And I, which is, what's really weird is that, you know, I went to college. I went to University of Arizona and that's a party school. (laughs) I've heard. But I chose that school (laughs) because my brother was there and I wanted to be close to the brother that was two years older than me. Yeah. And believe it or not, my first year in college, I lost 15 pounds. I didn't gain it. And I couldn't drink. I physically couldn't drink because, you know, the thought of it made me sick. And when I actually would try to drink, I'd get sick. 
and you know, I, at first I thought, okay, you know, this is my mind telling me you can't drink. But now that I look back at it, it's because I didn't have any food in my body. Sure, your body was just rejecting it. <laughs> it was. It was. That was just the worst year of my life. My freshman year in college it was just supposed to be the best time, and I was totally depressed and. Ugh, it was just awful. But come my second year of college, I, I guess I, I got better. You know, my, I dropped the eating disorder and I started acting like a normal college person, going out and partying and having a good time. Yeah. And so when did you, you know, start to realize your mom passed away and you're saying, I am never mm -hmm. going to be like that. That will never be me. You know, you're 44, your mom passed away and you're 47. When did you mm -hmm. stop, look at yourself in the mirror and say, uh-oh, wait a second, this might be going in the wrong direction? Honestly, I think probably, I'm 44 now, I think probably around 39, 38, 39 is when I started realizing that I was drinking differently than I had in the past. And what gave you that indication? I mean, because I had to have it in the house. Um, I didn't. I didn't drink during the day. But it, like, you know, I was working full time. I had two young kids, and you know, I come home and it was like it, it became my habit. I, I had to have that that drink, but it was never just a drink. It was always, you know, six or seven or eight. You know, it just it, it and you know, there was multiple times where I would, you know, say to my husband un under the influence, like, we got to cut back. I can't do this. Mm -hmm. You know, why am I doing this? And so, you know, we did the, the typical, okay, we're only going to drink on Friday and Saturday nights. And then it's, you know, Thursday, Friday and Saturday. Nights. <laughs> okay. We're only going to drink textbook. <laughs> Sorry. Wine. Or my favorite was I started drinking vodka for the less calories. Right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's your body favor. <laughs> it's just it's ridiculous. And, and it just got worse. It really got worse where it was like I couldn't I couldn't stop and you know finally the moment that I kind of figured things out is so I'd had a glass you know, maybe two glasses of wine and then we went out to dinner as a family mm -hmm. and out to dinner you know we had some more wine and how old are you at this and moment this is like three three and a half years ago okay gotcha and you know this place had karaoke I karaoke. I don't know why I would never do that sober. <laughs> <laughs> what did you sing? And do you remember? Last Dance by Donna Summer. Ah, that gets me every time too. I guess, I guess it was sober or dance. not. It wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you know, I came home and the kids went to bed and and I'm sitting there on the couch and I just like start crying and I'm like, oh, I don't think I can stop doing this. You know, but why why am I doing this and I'm like, I got to stop. I got to stop. And I just felt so ugly and so gross. And you know what I did? It was, this was a Wednesday night, you know? It's like 9 o'clock and I'm loaded. Mm -hmm. like, what for? And so I picked up the phone and I called my brother who had 15 years or 14 years at the time. And Good on you. Yeah. I said, I need to talk to you. Can you please come down here? And he did. And I remember I was sitting in the garage with him and I said... I have a drinking problem and he looked at me and he said Christy with your past I would be surprised if you didn't hmm. yeah and he hugged me and you know I, I was like I'm done and he left and what did I do I went and had two more shots of tequila <laughs> sure 
yeah, I went to bed and I woke up the next morning and felt awful. And first thing I think is, shoot, why did I tell my brother? <laughs> oh, know? I created accountability. Damn it. Yes, I did. And it was like I had to have the liquid courage to tell him. It was yeah. just ridiculous. And so that day was awful. I felt awful and talked to him. and But I was ready. You know, I was ready at that time. And so two days later, he took me to my first AA meeting. Cool. And, and what was that like? I was, oh, my God. I was so overwhelmed because I go, it's 9 o'clock on a Saturday morning, and there's like 300 people there. Wow. And I, you know, I'm seeing like other moms, you know, from school. And I'm like, oh, my God. I was kind of mortified. But then, you know, when I continued to go, I realized that all the meetings are not like that at all. <laughs> so that was the only, that was the biggest meeting I'd ever been. And it was the first one. It definitely made an interesting impact. Hmm. But I remember that the guy who spoke just had a really great story. And I felt that it helped. And then did you jump right into AA? Did you get a sponsor? Was that the start of your 18 months? Or did you kind of test the waters for a bit and continue to drink? Yeah, how did that progression go? No, I jumped right in. And I started to go to meetings, and I did get a sponsor. And I worked the steps. You know, I, I look at those 18 months, and they, they, they were really good. But I kind of feel like I was working on will. You know, like I never... I went through the steps really fast and I didn't, it was just kind of, I, I don't think I really realized the importance of the whole higher power God thing, mm -hmm. I guess. That part always was kind of a little weird to me and the idea of letting go and, you know, I'm not in control type thing. That was really hard for me, the whole idea of giving up your will and all that. But I managed to stay sober for quite a while. And my first relapse was on a work trip. I had gone to Toronto and I was out with, you know, I worked with a lot of people that were a lot younger than me and, you know, they're in their twenties and we're all out at a bar and, you know, there's a mechanical bull and, you know, somebody got shots and I don't know why I thought I could take it, but I did. And that just, that was the first, that was the first relapse and you know of course after that I continued drinking for you know probably a couple of weeks mm -hmm. or so I don't really remember but what I do remember is that I never stopped going to meetings and I did share that I relapsed and that was in I think maybe July or August I'm not sure when but 18 months after and did you I continue to go back to the meetings or did you, did you phase out? I did. I did. No, no. I always went. I always went. And so, you know, I, I think I got, I got a couple of months of sobriety back. Mm -hmm. And then, and then the thing with my brother happened, you know, I, uh, I get a call from his ex-wife saying that he hadn't showed up to pick up his son from an activity. And I thought that was really weird because son was everything to him and yeah. she just wouldn't do that you know and so I called and he didn't pick up and I probably I mean I talked to him all the time I mean he was out of all of our siblings I always felt the closest to him and he really helped me through you know the beginning of my sobriety anyways I called he didn't pick up and I had the keys to his apartment and I went over and I opened the door and I found him 
laying on the bathroom floor. Oh, wow. And he, he had died. It was a, you know, my first knee-jerk reaction was, oh, no, you know, he took pills or something. But that wasn't the case. His toxicology report was clear. And um, he had had a heart attack. So, yeah, that was that was really hard. That was really hard. Yeah, I can I can and, only you imagine. Know, yeah, yeah, and it it will have been two years coming this this September um, that he passed away. So what happened? I actually didn't drink right at first. I think I still had a couple more months of sobriety, but then. Like, I just felt like my world was crashing. He had named me the executor and trustee of his trust. And Mm -hmm. there was a lot to do. His ex-wife was really hard to work with. She had tried to get his insurance money, and he wanted to have his insurance money to go to his kid, and I had to take her to federal court. And it was just a mess. And so I was just, I, I was a mess you know I was trying to to work and I was trying to be a mom and I was trying to manage my brother's estate and it was just not fun and he had a ton of debt that I had to work with attorneys to figure out how to pay off and you know eventually drove me back to the bottle I guess and then how much longer did you drink before the nine months started which we're at right now on the 14th right on the 14th so I was in and out you know, I'd get 30 days, I'd get a week, I'd get whatever, just I kept going to meetings. And there was a good year, year and a half of just kind of being in and out in and out. Until finally, November, early November, I think it was maybe like the 10th or something. I just had had enough. And, you know, I had been drinking and I had said something and I just that's my problem when I drink. I say some, I say things that I wouldn't say when I'm sober. And, <laughs> oh, I need to quit drinking. <laughs> Damn it! Did I say yeah, that last yeah. night? <laughs> no. And and, and it's yeah, and it, and it, it it that's what did it. I woke up and I'm like this enough. I can't do this anymore. And the next day I called up um, an IOP mm-hmm. and said I need to do this and told my husband. And so I started um, November 14th. Of course, I had to drink the night before I went into the IOP. Totally. I left hurrah. Yeah. <laughs> and then I, I went into an IOP in uh, no, November and December, um, this past November and December, and that was four nights a week. Uh, it was hard to, you know, be away from my kids. But, and for listeners, explain know, what an IOP is. It's an outpatient rehab facility. Mm-hmm. So you go in there, there's probably 10 or 11 other addicts, uh, mostly for alcohol. One guy was in there for heroin, and you know they teach you coping mechanisms. They explain the disease, and uh, they, they you got to pee in a cup, <laughs> make sure that you're not drinking during the program. Mm-hmm. Um, but I felt I, I really, I actually really enjoyed the program. I learned a lot, and they they have you do some exercises that kind of help you through things. And yeah, since then it's it's been pretty good. Yeah, I want to comment on something you just said. You said there were four addicts there, or you know, there were addicts there. Most of them were mm-hmm. addicted to alcohol, and one person on, on yeah. here when you said, and I love how you said the word addicts. I was talking to a friend about this today. A friend called me up and said, mm-hmm. hey, I met with uh, met with a counselor, my therapist, and they, and, they, and they said, you know, you're not an alcoholic, but you probably shouldn't go back and drink again. 
And you know, they, they weren't saying like you, you can drink normally again. Yeah, you're a problem you know, with alcohol. But like I've said on this podcast, I don't like the word alcoholic. I like the word addict better because we don't say methaholic, cigaretteaholic, that we are addicted to a chemical called alcohol. Therefore, we are addicts. So I'm sure that was the, uh, the vernacular terminology they used when you were an IOP, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, there's addicts all over, but, you know, it's what's your poison? Exactly. Exactly. You know, is it, is it food? Is it sugar? Is it coffee? Is it mm-hmm. exercise? I mean, and, and we usually switch from one thing to the other, right? Totally. <laughs> so, I mean, I love my coffee. That's what I can say. Yeah. And from what I'm hearing, and I could be wrong, I'm, I'm hearing a lot of guilt, a lot of shame, a lot of sick and tired of being sick and tired. You know, one night of just bad Donna Summer karaoke. It sounds like you're a high, high bottom drunk and and you don't you have a lot more to lose. Am I correct? Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, I just I, I feel like I'm a high bottom drunk. You know, I didn't get the DUI. I didn't drive my kids drunk. But you know what? I was I wasn't present. You know, it's mm-hmm. like I would be bathing them and and it, it's just kind of all kind of like a pain in the ass because I just wanted to drink, you know, it's like now the moments are so precious. I, I, I can really sit there and appreciate the moment. Yeah. The that difference is now. Such a huge difference in my life as well. And um, mm-hmm. it, did you go back to AA? You, you, your IOP was, sounds like instrumental to get so getting sober again. Are you still involved in AA? Mm-hmm. I am. I am. I have a sponsor. I go to about three meetings a week. And I meet with my sponsor once a week. Yep. Fantastic. Awesome. Yeah. And, and how has life changed for you this time around with nine months of sobriety? You know, besides being able to be more present in the moment, what's different for you? I think it's, it's feeling good. You know, it's like you wake up and you've got a little skip in your step. And I mean, I am not a morning person at all. <laughs> right. So yeah. I've got the dearest husband in the whole world, and he is a morning person. He gets up and he brings me my coffee, and I usually have a little silent time, and then my kids come in, and, you know, it's like they want to just snuggle. It's like I just love it. It's the best time in the whole world. But I think just being able to, like, what I've learned is, is how to change my perception on things. I feel like everybody could use a 12-step program, whatever it is, because the tips that it gives you and managing day-to-day life is just amazing. I just love it. Like, you know, I can sit there and go, I'm a victim. I lost my mother. I lost my brother. Poor me. I should be an alcoholic, but that's not how I see it. I see it as I don't want to die like my mother. I don't want to die. My my brother was 46 as well, Hmm. 46, 47. And I'm 44, you know, yeah. And I, I don't want, I want to be there for my kids, you know, it's, that's very important to me. And, and I've got this disease and I want my kids to know that they could be susceptible too. So it's, it's living in the moment, being, living in gratitude. I think that's the biggest difference too, because when you live in gratitude, you can't live in fear and resentment. Like there's so much to be grateful for. And again, it's, I think it's my change of perception, you know, and now I don't look at my mom as, Oh, she chose, you know, alcohol and drugs over being my mother. I now see that it was a sickness, you know. It wasn't that she chose it. That's just, that was just the way things worked out for her. So mad at her for a long time. <laughs> yeah, and, and I love how you said being sober has allowed you to change your perception. Because the yeah, same thing for me. I just saw things from a different angle. And, like, I love how you mentioned totally. 
that the 12 steps, you, anybody should do it, whether you have a problem with alcohol or not. It's like the ultimate self-improvement. It, it, it's everybody should do it. It totally is. Yeah. Everybody should do it. I it's, mean, it's just, it's awesome. <laughs> yeah. I mean, just how to be a better person. And there's so many ways, yeah. you know, oh, I'm not going to do it because it's got the word God in it. Well, group of drunks, you know, just community. That's it. Replace higher power with whatever the heck you want. And I got one more question hey, for whatever. you, Christy, before we reach the rapid fire round. What's on your bucket list in sobriety? What do you want to achieve in this life? Oh, wow. Bucket list. I think, you know, I just, I love being of service, doing more service things, especially with my dog. And I wouldn't mind learning Spanish. I mean, my kids are going to start taking Spanish soon. And that's something that I always thought, why did I take French? <laughs> you know, I want to take Spanish. And last but not least, I think I'd really like to write a book. Awesome. What's <laughs> it going to be about? Memoir, you said? It's going to be about me. Uh-huh. Yeah. Have you read The Painting and the Piano? No. Yeah, I've, I've had the what authors on, on the podcast, and they're actually coming to the retreat. And when you were telling your story about your mother, it reminded me a lot of, um, God, the author John, his mother. And he just he describes how his mother drank herself to death in a similar fashion as, as your mom. And it's, yeah, I mean, I think a memoir would help a lot of people, and you should do it. That'd be awesome. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I love Drinking a Love Story and then also Blackout, those two books mm -hmm. I really related to. <laughs> Totally, totally, yeah. And the books, mm -hmm. the painting, and the piano, uh, uh, it's getting picked up by another book publisher. I think uh, I was talking to John, the author, and he was saying there's people, you know, they're writing a movie script about it. So it might even be in the theaters coming oh, wow. up. Wow. So it's pretty cool. Cool. Yeah, and Christy, we have reached the rapid fire round. If you could answer these questions in 30 to 60 seconds, that would be great. Are you ready? I'm ready. Besides Donna Summer Karaoke, what was your worst memory from drinking? Oh, Wow. My husband and I went up to San Francisco. A friend of ours was opening up a restaurant. And we decided to make a night of it and stay up in a hotel up there and uh, go to the restaurant and, and have a great time. Well, you know, I, I took a small bottle of vodka with me um, in the suitcase, you know, to save money or whatever. Economic Just reasons. needed to have a, yeah, you know, have a, have a little drink before we go to the party. Mm -hmm. <laughs> And I managed to get so wasted at that party. I don't even remember conversations that I had. I remember waking up in the hallway because people in the hallway uh, who worked there had to walk me to my room. Huh. And the next morning, I had lost my purse. So, yeah, that's definitely one of them. It's a rough night. We've all heard of the aha moment. When was your oh shit moment indicating I ah, can't control your drinking? God, I have a lot of those. Well, that was one of them. <laughs> the hotel. And, and also definitely the, the repeat times over and over again on a, on a regular Tuesday, Wednesday night, just being drunk for no reason. Like, I think it was just having that happen so many times before I actually did anything about it. But, Christy, don't beat yourself up. You did something about it. You're doing service right now. You're kind of doing a bucket list item as we speak. All right, next question. What's your plan in sobriety moving forward, Christy? You know, I guess it's just, you know, I, I think the best thing is just to not dwell on the past, live in the present, and just keep being of service. I mean, I feel like that really helps me, um, helping others. Absolutely. So. And what's your favorite resource in recovery? Ooh, you know, I really like the book Living Sober, and then, of course, definitely your podcast. That 
when I turned it on, I've, I've listened to every episode. So oh, I really thank you for listening. Really like it. And, and you know what? What I like, I like that you you uh, interview people with all lengths of sobriety. You know, I think it's great that you have somebody on there that has two weeks sobriety, one day sobriety. You know, seven years. I, I love that. I think it's really helpful, especially for those who are are coming in or considering recovery. Well, thank you for listening. I do appreciate that. And what was that book you mentioned? Was it Living Sober? Yes. Who who wrote that? It is. I got it. I got it right next to me. I'm not really good on authors, but why is it not saying the author? Alcoholics Anonymous World Services, Living Sober. It doesn't say. It just says Living Sober, Copyright, Alcoholics Anonymous. (laughs) An AA publication, Living Sober. I, it must be, yeah, because I don't see an author on there. Mm, all right, that's enough Weird. information. It's a yellow book. <laughs> yellow. All right. <laughs> we should be able to find it. And next question, in regards to sobriety, Christy, what's the best advice you've ever received? There is a woman that I hear in meetings all the time, and she says, I don't have a problem. I can't make worse by picking up a drink. Yeah, that's pretty sage advice. Yeah, and what parting piece of guidance can you give the listeners who are in recovery or thinking about quitting drinking? You know, do it. You'll feel better. You'll be much more crystal clear. And you'll live in a more honest and peaceful world. I mean, you just don't need to do that to yourself anymore. Just quit poisoning yourself. It's just, you don't need it. You don't need it. Alcohol is shit. Much better way of living. It's poison. You're 100% correct. And before we depart, Christy, give listeners your own customized, you might be an alcoholic gift line. You might be an alcoholic if you're hosting a party, and during that party, you're drinking wine with the guests, but sneak in the back to take shots of vodka by yourself. Mm, textbook. <laughs> yeah, I've done that. <laughs> love it. <laughs> Christy, thank you so much for joining us and being of service. I love it. Thank you very much. You have a great evening. No problem. Thanks, Paul. The Recovery Elevator Retreat is eight days away. I'm excited. I'm nervous. I woke up with anxiety this morning. But it was an anxiety that was helpful. I've got over 30 people finding from around the country. Some people from out of the country coming to a retreat that I'm putting on. Recovery Elevator, this podcast, this whole project, it wasn't my life plan. It wasn't my goal. If you were to ask me five years ago, where would you see yourself in five years? Recovery Elevator wasn't even a concept. It wouldn't even be part of the conversation. So I'm nervous. I'm scared. But I'm right inside my comfort zone. Oh, no, no, wait a second. I'm way outside of my comfort zone. It's scary. But that's where the growth takes place. And this anxiety that I'm feeling, I wanted to run away from it. I did. I really wanted to run away from it. But right now, I need to go in the center. Not left, not right. But before I recorded this podcast episode, I meditated. I didn't want to do it. Me and my buddy Andy from Headspace, we just sat there and I was in the center with my feelings and emotions. Like I said, I didn't go left. I didn't go right. And a big step forward in my meditation journey is I'm not suppressing and I'm not grasping at ideas. What I mean by that is that when a negative thought comes to mind, I'm not suppressing it. And then when a brilliant plan comes to mind of how I can feel better, I'm not grasping at it. I'm not saying, oh, that's it. That's what's going to make me feel better at this very moment. No, I'm not suppressing. I'm not grasping. I'm just being there right in the middle. I'm taking the center path. Getting unstuck is not easy, (laughs) but that's what I'm doing. So if you are listening, 
and you're joining us at the Recovery Elevator Retreat coming up in eight days. I cannot wait to meet you. It's going to be a blast. And again, we're going to try to put on one of these things next fall, 2018, not in Bozeman, Montana, but in Cusco, Peru. We're going to do the Machu Picchu Trail. We are going to volunteer at orphanages. I've done this trip twice already. It's going to be an amazing time. In fact, if you're interested to get more information about that trip to Peru in 2018, email me at paul at recoveryelevator.com. Recovery Elevator, we took the elevator down. We got to take the stairs back up. We, and I mean we, as in all of us, the community is the most important thing about this whole thing. We can do this.